IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we are discussing the discography of the 1975 my name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. I like it when he sleeps, for he is so beautiful, yet so unaware of it. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? So, there's going to be a recurring theme of this episode, where Steve talks about how much I like the 1975 more than him. And yet, like, to lead off, he has done something which I've not been able to do in six years, which is correctly say the entire title of the 1975 second album. So, you're way out ahead so far. Well, it's only because it's written in this outline in front of me. If I had to do it, uh, you know, out in the wild, I wouldn't be able to pull it off. Uh, we should say at the top here, too, that we are talking about the 1975 because they have a new single that will presumably be out by the time this episode posts, but it didn't drop in time for us to hear it to record in this episode. So... Does this just go to show that you can't rely on the 1975, Ian? Like, if you put your faith in this band, they're going to let you down time and again. Yeah, you know, we, we can joke about, like, you know, any number of, like, cultural events that might have led them to push it back. You know, I think, I don't know, I, I am not the uh, UK politics understander on this episode, but I think that Boris Johnson stepped down. Uh, so, you know, maybe Matty Healy is just, like com- like, feverishly revising his lyrics to account for that. Uh, there was a Jordan Peterson YouTube that dropped where he um, uh. he, he clapped back at like getting kicked off Twitter, um, and maybe they'll sample that. Like all bets, all bets are really off with the 1975. So uh, yeah, can you rhyme Boris Johnson with Jordan Peterson? Is there some way? Because you have the sun at the end. I, that's not really rhyming, but I wonder if there's some way that you could. Working a lyric. If there is Maddie Healy, those names. Maddie Healy is on the case, and maybe work a heroin reference <laughs> in there. You know, like I'm, I'm, Boris Johnson is is kicking the conservative party, like I was kicking heroin in 2012 or something. Like that could be a Maddie Healy <laughs> lyric, yeah, get- perhaps. So, are we going to force ourselves to talk about the song of the summer here? Uh, are we lowering ourselves uh, to this level of discourse since we're in the middle of summer? Not a lot going on. I mean, are we gonna are we are we gonna debase ourselves by trying to talk about the song of the summer? Would we be music writers if we didn't force ourselves to talk about it? Um, you, you know what? Like we, I, I like what I like about the song of the summer discussion is that you, you see like the music writing community as a whole, like maybe a little less miserable talking about this than like doing Grammys or MTV music awards or like Super Bowl halftime discourse. (laughs) Like they're slightly, they're slightly more happy to like talk about the most popular songs on earth right now and then nominate alternatives for like slightly less popular songs that are still super popular. And then the back and forth about, well, actually the song of the summer is Return of the Mac by Mark Morrison for the 50th straight year. So it's a, it's a nice little dance. You did, you, you really ran down the litany of like <laughs> the most garbage beats for music critics, which I've had to do all of those things. Yeah, you write about the Grammys, you, you, you do the Grammys preview, which uh, 
I think is better than the than the Grammys recap. The Grammys recap, I think, is, is that's like the lowest of the low uh, for a music writer. And then around that same time in the calendar, you you have the Super Bowl halftime show recap. I think that is I think that is actually the worst assignment mm-hmm. because it to me because you know you, you like most people they watch the Super Bowl, the halftime show comes on, maybe they're watching it. Most of the parties I've been to for you know watching the game, people are just like talking or you know eating chips or something. They're not really paying attention to it. But then the music critic comes in and they do like a very chin strokey commentary on like what the Super Bowl halftime show means, <laughs> you know. And it it is really it's just it's like scraping the bottom of the of the barrel. I would for a music. Critic. I would say that is. Yeah, I, I think there's been like this dead cat bounce for relevance for MTV's music video music awards. So uh, just because there's like more musicians appearing there. So yeah, I think Super Bowl halftime show is currently like the lowest on that totem pole. Yeah, but then but then it's so funny because it's always like the Grammys are like right after that. So it, you know it's already like February, and you know where I live, it's <laughs> the worst time of the year. You know weather wise. But then you have to also suffer this terrible weather and then write about the Super Bowl halftime show. And then maybe even like the following week, sometimes it's the Grammys. You got to do the fucking Grammys after that. Just just terrible. It's back to back. February is dark. And this time of year, there's also like a lull in new music releases. So, um, yeah, when it comes to like Song of the Summer discourse, like I'm fit. There's like a line on The Simpsons I think about where Homer, like Bart breaks his leg and can't use his pool and Homer's like, don't worry, boy, when you get a job like me, you'll miss every summer. Like the song of the summer is just absolutely meaningless to me right now. Well, I mean, I tweeted about this recently where I feel like Song of the Summer discourse in the music writer community has declined over the past decade. I feel like... 10 years ago, you saw this all over the place. It, it seems less prevalent now, or am I wrong? I mean, when I tweeted that, I, I feel like I wasn't seeing anything. In recent weeks, I, I, I've seen more articles talking about this, so maybe I jumped the gun a little bit, but I don't know. I feel like there's less of it, but maybe it's just because I am no longer being forced to do it. You know, like like all these things we're talking about, Super Bowl halftime show, Grammy, Song of the Summer. It's usually because an editor wants you to write about this because they feel like it's going to get traffic. Um, and they're not wrong, right? <laughs> well, no, Grammys gets no traffic. Oh. Like whenever, whenever I've written about the Grammys, it's crickets. You know, and maybe that's just my readership. They don't care about it. Maybe if someone else wrote about it, they get readers. I know, like whenever I've I've written about the Grammys, it it just died. On the vine. I love how you have insider information about this. Like this is well, I've seen my tra- I see my traffic numbers. <laughs> I, I know what works and what doesn't. And Grammys never works. It's a big social media thing. Like if you're tweeting about it, you get a lot of engagement. But in terms of actual recaps, you know, I don't know if there's an audience for people that are interested in talking about the Grammys or the Super Bowl halftime show beyond just sort of in the moment commentary. You know, like. You, you want to see tweets about it, but you want to read like 1,500 words on it. Uh, you know, I feel like there's not a big market for it, but I don't but, know. Maybe maybe other people have a big Grammy constituency and it works for the them. The IndyCast listener cares. 
That's what I could tell. <laughs> no way. All right, I, they're already tur- they're like fast forwarding. <laughs> I think through this part of the episode. Um, should we talk about the Stranger Things bump? If we're gonna talk about Song of the Summer, we gotta talk about the other thing that's really sustaining the music writing industry right now. Like this is what banter is. It's like what is kind of annoying us about the music writing uh, discourse right now. Well, okay, so we we all know that Kate Bush got a big bump from Stranger Things because running up that hill was featured in an episode. And now, apparently, it happened to Metallica. Their their song, Master of Puppets, was in the finale episode of the current season of Stranger Things. And I'm reading this. This is from a NME article. Because I've, I've not watched the season of Stranger Nor Things. I bailed on Stranger Things nope. a while ago. I saw, like, all the episodes are, like, an hour and a half? Two hours long. Like, they, they, they take way too what? long to get to the meat of the episode. They need to learn a little bit I, more from IndieCast. Exactly. They're, they're applying the 1975 method to episodes <laughs> here. Every episode is getting super long. I don't have time for this. Um, in the finale, titled The Piggyback, Eddie Munson. It's <laughs> a, a character called Eddie Munson. Sure. Man, I've really checked out on this show. Uh, he played the song Master Puppets on a rooftop to distract a horde of demonic bats protecting the lair of main villain Vecna? Vesna? I've heard I've heard Vecna. I've I've had Vecna. I've heard it discussed at work. I believe it's pronounced Vecna. Okay. So Metallica apparently is getting a bump from this. And it'll be curious to see if we're going to see like weeks of stories <laughs> about this, similar to what we saw with Kate Bush. Like if Kate Bush sneezed in the past few weeks, there was an article about it, and they somehow tied it to Stranger Things. Uh, you know, th- that's like the level of attention that the story has been getting. I wonder, like, is anyone out there going to complain that these that these kids watching Stranger Things didn't discover Metallica the right way. Like they should have discovered it via like their alcoholic uncle, you know, like, 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 like the way us older people had to discover Metallica, you know, from the burnouts at the smoking doors in high school. Like that's how you are supposed to learn about Metallica, (laughs) not from stranger things. Is that going to be a think piece that someone writes? Yeah. Or, or like, you know, the failure of our mandatory Metallica act. Um, I, I haven't listened to classic rock radio in a long time, but like mandatory Metallica, like I want, that is a thing. Like there is like a block, uh, like it might be at nine o'clock where it's called like literally mandatory Metallica. I've always loved that name, you know, but Oh yeah. I don't know. But Hey, you know what? After Kate Bush, you got Metallica, you know, it's, it's something for the fellas, man. I mean, look, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know. Like I'm not a huge Metallica fan. Like they're kind of a blind spot, but, like how long has it been since this band has received like a win on it on, in the pop discourse? Well, you know, they're one of those bands that I feel like. Well, first of all, they don't need a bump. All right, it's it's hilarious to me <laughs> that people would talk about a Metallica bump. This band literally plays stadiums still. You know, they they're a huge band. They're like one of the biggest bands in the world. And have been for the better part of 30 years now, you know, since the Black Album really kicked them into that group of bands. I mean, they've just been ginormously huge. So, but, you know, I'm sure it's true that for, you know, like a certain generation maybe, like this is like the first time that they're hearing Metallica. Although, again, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I'm trying to think about 
any kind of needle drop having this sort of impact. I mean, it really does speak to Stranger Things, things as power. Yeah. That, you know, we were talking about that show, The Bear, on on uh, Hulu, and we'll, we'll be we'll be talking about them, I think, more next week. But, you know, I'd love to see the acoustic version of Have You Seen Me Lately <laughs> by Counting Crows get a bump because it's featured in the first episode of that show. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is a yeah, big moment for Metallica here. You know, good for those guys. Good for them to finally get a break in this business. Seriously, I, I'm just... I know I'm to assume that there's going to be a season five and this is going to be like the next enormous payout. I don't even know a scandal, but there's going to be, if we look at the timeline, probably like early nineties. So, you know, we're going to see like the, the people who have the rights to the Jesus Jones catalog, like just paying the Duffer brothers untold amounts of money <laughs> to get right here right now. Or maybe this is where Ned's atomic dustbin finally gets their day in the sun. Good Jesus Jones reference there. Yes. You know, either them or like uh, EMF, uh, unbelievable. Get that in there. Maybe uh, if we want to go really deep in the like sort of dancey guitar bands from England in the mm. early 90s, get some Soup Dragons in there. Do, do anyone, anyone remember the Soup Dragons? Fuck yeah. Free, Divine Thing. We're gonna Divine get just, Thing. Yeah, That's just song. really, re- and also that like Primal Scream album where they decided to be the Rolling Stones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or the, No, they wanted to be the Black Crows on that album. Yeah, and uh, they put a Confederate flag on the cover, which is pretty yeah. wild for a British band to do. I think like when you look at that, it, it's... Uh, um, Give up, but don't get out, or something. Yeah, if you if, if you look that up on on uh, Spotify, is a different cover now. Oh, but good for them. Yeah, it's <laughs> it didn't age well to, for an English man to put a Confederate flag on the cover. It's that's uh, a little too much cosplay for Southern rock uh, for a British band. So, <laughs> did you want to talk about seeing Kraftwerk this week? Because you saw Kraftwerk. Yeah, I saw Kraftwerk. I mean, this was like one of the most fun. I saw Kraftwerk 3D. Like, I don't imagine they have too many of these tours left in them. Like, uh, the main guy, Rolf, he's 75 years old. And he's not like, you know, this Bob Dylan or you know, Bob Dylan type or Van Morrison, where he's like kind of dressed like a 75 year old rocker is supposed to. They're still wearing like green screen type like outfits um the, the guy looks old as hell but you know what this is one of the but he doesn't have to do anything physically though right he's he sings just standing he sings yeah but yeah he sings but um you know with craft work they are a band and for those who don't know do we have to explain what craft work is to our I audience we, i feel like i think we gotta explain german electronic legends they got started in the 1970s albums like autobahn it's a great record what are some other uh, Transger, Big Express, um, Man yeah, Machine, such a great, record. great record. The Man Machine. Yeah, I mean, they yeah. basically invented like electronic music as we know it. And uh, the thing I love about this uh, show is that every like because it's 3D, everyone's got to sit down. Uh, you see like dads in LCD sound system and like LTJ Bukum t-shirts taking their kids who are wearing like Moog uh, synthesizer t-shirts. Just really wholesome. Um, and they haven't changed, even if it is 3D, they haven't changed their graphic style since the 1970s or like 70s, 80s. So you see like, you know, Tandy computers coming at you directly in 3D. Fantastic, fantastic show. Um, couldn't, couldn't recommend it highly enough. And the best part about this is not only that people are sitting down, but like no one feels the need to yell stuff at the stage in between songs. That's 
that that's just gotten out of control at bright eyes and fleet foxes show i've seen recently um and no one's getting up and trying to dance there was one guy who tried to dance i think during autobahn and like no one was feeling it so he just kind of like you know while dancing (laughs) he just kind of like shuffled off to the side so um yeah so basically is what i'm saying is that i want my live show experience to be more like an actual movie these days well you know you you bring up an interesting point here. There is a phenomenon that's happening at concerts now where, you know, we've all been cooped up for a few years. Now we're out commingling again. And there does seem to be people who, like, they just forgot, like, how to act in public, you know. And it really seems to be happening at concerts where yeah, people are just out of control. Like, they're just screaming all the time at the stage or they're talking like even more than they did before the pandemic, I feel like just talking throughout the entire show. Uh, and again, I, I think we're just excited to be around people. So it's like, oh, there's a person next to me. I want to talk to you. <laughs> or there's a person on stage. We're having a one-to-one experience here, you know, in my mind. I'm, so we're having a conversation. I'm going to talk to you. I don't know. It's like this is, we're in an adjustment period, I think, of, of socialization where people are like relearning. Oh, yeah, like I, I shouldn't act like this but i you know i i forgot i've been locked <laughs> I, up for so the long the year is 2022 and i really heard a more cowbell a guy yelling more cowbell at robin peck poor robin peck up there during fleet foxes oh jesus christ who's doing the who's doing San a cowbell Diego, joke man. i don't know we, we are we are stuck Come on in, we are stuck in uh, 2002 in many ways well, let's get to our mailbag segment. Thank you all for writing into us. It's always great to hear from our listeners. If you want to hit us up, we're at indiecastmailbag at gmail.com. Uh, do you want to read this letter, Ian? Yeah, Caleb from Grand Rapids, Michigan. This is like nice. primo IndieCast mailbagger. Uh, Love it. I am writing to ask your thoughts on groups playing the whole album straight through in concerts. After the album, groups usually follow by playing a small greatest hit set plus encore, and the energy at the show often changes. The groups loosen up, talk more, and appear to have more fun running through the record. I've seen it work well. Personal examples include Lowe playing Hey What, which was mind-blowing incredible. Like, I did not know they were doing that. I want to see that. And Sufjan playing Carrie and Lowell in a cinematic and moving experience. I've also seen it not work well. The Decemberist playing Hazards of Love come to mind. Uh, what do you think of these shows? Do you like hearing the new record live? Does it depend on the quality of the album, the new album's relation to the rest of the band's catalog, or something else? Or does the show change your appreciation understanding of the album? Can you think of terrible, awesome, or funny experiences? Thanks again for the pod. Caleb. Thank you, Caleb, for writing in. So this is an interesting experience because it seems like Caleb is talking about artists playing their latest album in its entirety. Hmm. And I don't know if I've ever experienced that in person. You know, I feel like, for instance... um, Wilco, they recently played their entire new album in in in, in order, and it was live streamed. And I, for, I forget where I think it was from their own festival. Right. Um, and I think Wilco did the same thing when they played Pitchfork, and they they did Star they did. Wars front to back. Um, I don't know if I've seen. I'm trying to think of examples like where a band played their new record front to back at the start of the show. Did, did that happen to you? Because like I've seen bands play classic albums. Yes. In their entire yeah, life. so I I think that this became a major thing during the pandemic because like I think about say like Foxing just re released near my or not near my God uh, draw down the moon they did like an entire like uh, staged performance of the album in order but 
as far as like doing it in person, yeah, I've never once seen a band say like, hey, we're going to play this new album front to back in front of you. Um, I thought they were talking more about like the uh, the phenomenon where a band, it's like, hey, come see, um, for example, like last night, I, I missed Motion City soundtrack playing Commit This to Memory because I went and saw Flea Foxes instead. Very tough decision. Wow. Very wow. tough decision. Wow. An upset. That's a that's an upset decision there yeah. for Ian Cohen. I would not have called that. <laughs> if, if I was predicting, I would have predicted you going to see the pop punk show, not the the neo folk show. But you you pulled a switcheroo. Well, there. the difference is that the Motion City soundtrack we're playing at the House of Blues downtown, which is the worst parking situation in San Diego. Whereas Fleet Foxes were playing five minutes from my house. So um, lesson in that. Uh. Um, but. You know, I've seen that, like, as far as, like, bands conceptually doing that sort of thing, no problem with it. It probably is a good source of income. I don't feel particularly emotional about, um, you know, like, oh, my God, it, like, demeans the memory of it to, like, do this bit of fan service. But in order for this stuff to work, the band has to clearly be into it. Like, I've seen, uh, I remember Block Party did a silent alarm tour uh, recently, and, you know, like, it's very clear from the past 20 years that Kelly is, like, not at all trying to relive 2005. And they'll play, I think they played the album backwards or something like that. Uh, Patrick Stickles also, I remember them, I remember them saying, like, yeah, we're never going to, like, they're not, they, they feel like the monitor kind of overshadows their entire catalog. And it's like, no, nah, we're never going to do that. But then, you know, the opportunity presented itself. It's like, yeah, I guess we'll do the monitor. Um, I saw Clap Your Hands say, yeah, do a 10-year anniversary of their self-titled, um, which, on the other hand, I'm like, yeah, that, I'd be okay with that. I think, overall, this works best at a festival where you have 45 minutes to see a band and you do not want them to, like, kill time by playing two songs off the new record. Um, and also, at festivals, people there just be entertained. Um you know, it's like, come on, okay, Alkaline Trio, like, yeah, I don't want to hear your new EP. Just play God Damn It all the way through. Um, in, in those situations, all for it. Like, I've seen it done well, but it's really just about how enthusiastic the band is about this pretty clearly mercenary idea. Yeah, you know, I've, I was thinking about the examples where I've seen, you know, a band or an artist do the whole album, and it's always been or it's almost always been like in huge arena or even stadium situations. Like I saw you two do the Joshua Tree from front to back. And that was obviously a tour organized around that. I saw like Bruce Springsteen do Born to Run in its entirety. And that wasn't a tour. It was just like Jeez. he decided to do it that night, uh, which was pretty awesome. And Pearl Jam, the same thing. They, they did oh. Yield <laughs> in its entirety. And that was just sort of, and, which was really cool. That's like considered a pretty classic show in, in Pearl Jam circles, a show I really, really liked. And, and this is like an example of what you were talking about being at a festival and just wanting to hear like the very best in a relatively short set. Um, Bob Mould did the entirety of Copper Blue uh, at Summerfest like 10 years ago. And I think that was wow. a tour that he did where he was doing all of Copper Blue. But, you know, I like other Bob Mould music, but if I had a choice and someone said you could only hear 50 minutes of live Bob Mould, I would basically say just play Copper Blue from, from front to back. That'd be amazing. And that was a really great show. So 
Yeah, I don't know. I I definitely don't have any issues with it in terms of it being like a mercenary thing or whatever. I, the one issue with it sometimes is that the albums might work great as a record, but if you're playing it live in sequence, it doesn't always play well as like a live set. Like it was awesome to hear the Joshua Tree um, in sequence, but you know that album starts with three enormous hits. Uh, where the streets have no name, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, and with or without you, songs that would always, you know, typically probably be towards the end of a set, and now you're starting with them, and the rest of the album is great, but it is like a little bit of a lull. I, I mean, you're going into bull, the blue sky after that. That's a great song. It's not really a lull, but I, you know, it, again, it's not structured in the way that you would structure a concert. Like the the emotional highs sometimes are inconveniently placed if you're playing an album in sequence versus structuring like a, a traditional concert set. So that would be my one thing about that sometimes where I don't think it totally works. But yeah, you know, again, especially for some of these older bands, sometimes just playing an album that people love, it just uh, reduces the distractions or the boredom that you might get if if you sort of feel obligated to play like a new song or something that you know people aren't going to want to hear. And also if they get paid, good for them. It's like the it's like the Motion City soundtracks of the world who really I think could benefit from stuff like this. So. Yeah, yeah, it was good to, it was good for you two to get paid doing the Joshua Tree. I think yeah, they made an- like another band similar to Metallica who could really use like kind of a boost. So. Yeah, exactly. I think they made like 300 million dollars on that tour or something. <laughs> it, it, it was like the biggest tour of, of that year. So, um Let's get to the meat of our episode here, uh, and with a couple minutes to spare here, so we're, we're getting under the half-hour wire uh, cleanly in this mm. episode. So, in this episode, we're talking about the discography of the 1975, um, and for those who don't know, this is a band from England, four-piece band. The members all met in high school in the early aughts. They started putting out music in the early 2010s. Uh, with, they started with a series of EPs in 2012 and 2013 before releasing their self-titled debut in 2013. They have since released three more albums. There is another album, it appears, that's going to be coming out presumably later this year. Uh, like I said earlier, they have a new single that will probably be out by the time this episode posts. Ian and I have not heard it yet, but we're going to be talking about their older albums, their work so far leading up to the new single and new album. Um, just at the start here, as just like an overall comment, um, as we've, I think, made clear on this show before, Ian, you like this band a lot more uh, than I do. And I have to say that, you know, upon revisiting their discography for this episode, I don't quite understand the passion this band inspires. I mean, to me, they strike me at best as a good band, especially a good singles band, that... I think often overextends themselves in an attempt to be great. And to my ears, I don't think that they've ever been truly great. Again, I think they're a good band. They're a solid band. They've put out some singles that I quite enjoy. Um, but for all the of the talk about this band and all the ego of this band, I don't feel like the work justifies it. You know, like we talk about someone like Billy Corgan, you know, being oh, this yeah. egomaniac. We talk about him being this egomaniac, and maybe you could draw some parallels in that respect between him and Maddie Healy. But Billy Corgan, to me, is a guy who, at his best, delivered the goods. He delivered, I think, great music that 
justifies the egotism, or at least makes it more tolerable to me. And I don't feel like the 1975 have done that. And I'm going to pose this question to you. And this is a friendly question. This is not a, uh, you know, an accusatory thing or anything. But I have to say, like, I look at this band and I see a band that is very poppy, very discourse oriented, and extremely relevant. I'm putting relevant in air quotes here in the most self-conscious way possible. On paper, they seem to me to be a band that you would normally hate. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. but you, but, but you love this band. And I'm, uh, why is that? Like, what is it about this band that you love so much? So you brought up Billy Corrigan, and I'm glad you did so I didn't have to get to it first. Um, Billy Corrigan, to me, if you put aside, I think you, uh, you put, a, like, if you put aside the music or, like, the stylistic differences between them and uh, Maddie, he- or in 1975, or Billy Corrigan and Maddie Healy, um, you mentioned how Maddie Healy, like, overextends themselves in an attempt to be great. Um, the Smashing Pumpkins are perhaps the most formative band of my entire youth. Um, and a lot of that is the overextending themselves to be great. And so, in other words, they're tryhards. And, I, you know, as we get into, like, the EP era, like, I'll explain that, you know, the fact that Sex was the first song I heard from them. Uh, that made me predisposed to like them more than had they released, say, Chocolate or The City or something along those lines. But um, I think in regards to them as being a pop-relevant discourse-type band, they have this, and I can't, I've, I've thought for a decade, I cannot think of a better word than shittiness. There's like a shittiness to the 1975 where they fail, they fail loudly when they fail, and they do so in a way that's kind of endearing. I think when they were starting to emerge in the early, you know, with the EP era, um, which, you know, these songs are important. These are some of their most popular songs, um, even if they didn't make the first LP. Um, They're... they, they, They espouse this kind of philosophy of living that you can... I guess, form one's life around where it's like kind of mock profound, but kind of dumb. It's like kind of sexy in a way, or it tries to be sexualized, but still kind of like jokey, Uh, self-aware, but not totally self-aware. Like I compare them to a lot of the bands that came around early on, like say Haim or Vampire Weekend. And, you know, those bands like strike me as like having all their shit together the 1975 do not have their shit together. And I find that component of them so endearing. And that's continued to this day. So I don't know. They do remind me of Billy Corgan or maybe even like early Nine Inch Nails in that way where uh, you can see how easy it is for them to like make a terrible song. Well, let's get into it here. Exploring their catalog, uh, you mentioned the EP era, and this precedes their 2013 self-titled. There were four EPs that came out in 2012 and 2013. You have Face Down, you have Sex, you have Music for Cars, and you have Four. Um, and those came out over the course of about a year leading up to the the first proper album. And I, my memory of the 1975 at this time is that they were not critically acclaimed, certainly not they weren't critically acclaimed in America. I feel like at this time too, that they were, they had this sort of boy band connotation to them. They weren't directly involved with one direction. I don't think, but like they were sort of like, that was their peer 
at the beginning of the career more so than like Haim and you know, Vampire Weekend, some of these other bands that you mentioned. I mean, am I correct on that? I mean, that's my memory of this band from I, that period. I think it's not altogether, you know, incorrect. I would think of them more along the lines, maybe not so, like, maybe the reason they get compared to One Direction is that they're extremely good looking and they're all really tall. That's an unusual thing for a band. But they were, they made me think more of bands around that time, like, say, The Neighborhood or Foster the People. Like, indie, like, not boy band specific, like, you know, they play guitars and they play guitars from the jump. But, um, yeah, had I had the knowledge of the word industry plant back then, I might have, like, <laughs> used it. Because uh, they were, like, called the... I heard that song Sex when they were still called The Slowdown. They've had, like, several names before setting on 1975. So, Sex, I think, has been released, like, five separate times before it ended up on the LP. So, you were, like, on the ground floor. Ground floor. With this band. And do you remember, like, how you encountered that song, Sex? Um, I, I'm not going to say this very often, but I sort of wish I, like, about that time of my life, 2011 or so. But I really wish I had more documentation of, like, my emails from that time. It probably wasn't Twitter. Twitter was not really well developed. I, I, I distinctly remember getting emailed by this guy called Ed Blow, who was, like, I think the manager, maybe still is the manager, of uh, the 1975, I saw them perform at the Troubadour, I think, alongside the neighborhood. And, like, they were like, hey, the band wants to meet you. They were so happy that, like, you reviewed their Face Down EP for Pitchfork. And I did not review it favorably. But, uh, yeah, they're, like, Pitchfork-reading dorks. I think that also comes through in this band. But I, th- when I heard Sex, I'm like, you know, this song makes me think of, like, Frightened Rabbit times Jimmy Eat World. The, and I had no concept of emo revival at that time. So that that was the only game in town. And I thought to myself, like, okay, maybe these guys make a really great Jimmy Eat World record. And I like it, you know, on that level and no more. Like, I did not see them as, like, a generational type band. You know, we keep talking about that song, Sex. And I, I feel like I have to keep saying that song, Sex, instead of saying we keep talking about sex. Well, but anyway. the song. Uh but this era of the band, the EP era, and again, like a lot of the songs on these EPs ended up on the first record. So our conversation about the EPs and the first record, it's sort of the same era, basically. But, you know, revisiting this era of the band, it, I did find it refreshing uh, because it did seem like at this time that they were just writing these kind of big, dumb pop songs that are catchy and enjoyable. And it didn't have the pop philosopher baggage that their later work has that I think really detracts from what this band does well. Um, because I do think that for me, the 1975 is at their most appealing when um, they're just being this sort of like young, decadent rock band that has a lot of different influences in pop and electronic music and R&B, almost like a Duran Duran type band. Like that to me is the most attractive version of this band. And, and you really see that in this era and you know listening to the song sex it's interesting you know that you that that kind of set the template for you for this band because that song seems sort of atypical of their output for the most part i mean it's the most rock song or one of the most rock songs in their catalog like i don't i i there's not a whole lot of music elsewhere in their in their discography that sounds like that 
Is and, there? I mean, am I missing it? Because I feel like later on, they don't really draw from that sort of emo well as much as they did maybe at the, at this juncture in their career. Absolutely not. Like, there'll be some rock songs on the later albums, like, you know, People, for example, or Give Yourself a Try, but none are... And this band, like, they... Matty Healy, if I'm like to take him at his word, fucking loves emo. Not just, like, the popular stuff, but, like, like revival stuff from Japan. Um, this song, though, like, what I love about this song in relation to 1975, like, just imagine if Radiohead, like, did not disown Creep. Or, like, the Flaming Lips did not disown... Or, or if MGMT did not disown kids or something along those lines. It's like, they are proud as fuck of that song, even though it is complete outlier, it is totally juvenile. I appreciate that about the 1975. They still might close out their sets with it. And let's transition now to the first record here that, you know, it, we, we've talked a lot on this show about the year 2013 being a really pivotal year in recent indie history, that being a time when you had a lot of artists emerging that were basically embracing mainstream pop music and divorcing indie from its punk rock past. You had the 1975, you had Haim, you had Lord, you had Churches, um, all coming out at the same time. We mentioned Vampire Weekend. They're an older band, but they put out uh, their record, Modern Vampires of the City, that year, which was a very important and influential record. Um, and... You made a, a point earlier, separating 1975 from that class, I think because they're not as tasteful as those groups, <laughs> like if we can nope. use that word, like uh, like Haim and, um, you know, Lord, they have the right kind of influences. And when I say the right kind of influences, I mean in terms of like what tastemakers or music critics might appreciate. The 1975 are, are way more all over the map. Uh, you know, they're less inclined to uh, sort of toe the line in terms of like what's acceptable. Um, and that made them not very popular with critics at this time. Though, although I think retrospectively, people look back and they see this as an important record. I, uh, again, this is like one of my, uh, this is a record that I, that I enjoy. I think especially like the middle part of the record is really strong. I had to laugh listening to uh, that song, Heart Out, which terrible. <laughs> terrible title by the way but like that is such a direct ripoff of the drive soundtrack you know which was a very sort of common touchstone at that moment in indie history like i just had to laugh i mean you know that is a double-edged sword with this band a little bit like they're a very derivative band and they're in it's good in in one respect because I think that they're pretty skilled at like replicating other genres and, and, and dabbling and being, uh, you know, sort of like a dilettante in lots of different pop styles. But it, I, to me, it also makes them um, a little less distinctive. Like that song, it just made me want to listen to the Drive soundtrack because uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's like a better version of what the 1975 were doing here. But um, I don't, is this like your favorite record by them or like, or do you have the, the most affection for this record? I have a lot of affection for this record. Um, it's, I, I wrote like an enormous article about this for Grantland back in the day, how it was like a teen pop record, but like for, you know, like it, it's almost like a teen pop record for like Smashing Pumpkins fans or like M83 fans. Um, 
this is and when people talk about how these new these most recent 1975 albums have like i don't know mandated maybe them getting to like a is this it style 12 or 11 song 33 minute uh no all killer no filler album i feel like this is kind of their version of that like yeah it's like 16 songs two interludes two or three interludes but you know it's like you're saying duran duran the killers maybe like phoenix if they were like a little more juvenile um you know the the run from sex to uh settle down incredible stuff it's super simplistic songs about drugs and getting laid or not getting laid alternatively and i i felt like you know sex primed me for this uh the song sex primed me for this album in a way that like if i just heard it like with no prior um, understanding of like what, who they are, what they do. Yeah. I probably would have hated it just about as much as everyone else who was a music writer at that time. I was like very much in the tank, like one man army for this album played it the other day, you know, not the height of their powers, but uh, it's a kind of album that I'll always love because of the time that it found me in its life. There's no accounting for that. So. Yeah. And and again, like making a record about, wanting to get laid or not getting laid that's what i want from this band and maybe <laughs> they weren't going to be able to do that their whole career you know you, you can't just make that same album over and over again but i do like them in that kind of guise and, th- and that leads us to the second record which i'm not going to say the whole title again oh uh well let me scroll up on the outline here so i can <laughs> see it uh the second record i like it when, i like it when you sleep for you are so beautiful yet so unaware of it um which by the way is is that like a One Direction reference? Because it sounds like what makes you beautiful uh. is that you don't know that you're beautiful. You know that big One Direction hit, which the 1975 covered. Uh, I looked this up in 2013. Has that ever been pointed out? That seems like that might be like a One Direction like subtweet. Uh, I, I would imagine in like the depths of 1975 standum, you know, which is pretty deep and significant they've probably like hashed that out that trend out uh you know beyond all recognition look i'm gonna have to take your word for it i haven't heard that and, and i'm not trying to say like oh you listen to one direction what's up with that you well, that was to- like a pretty big song i mean yeah. that was one of those songs that was just in the air in the early 2010 so uh but anyway yeah. you know this this album this was the peak i think of my interest in the 1975 i remember they were on uh, they were on Saturday Night Live in this era, and it was a pretty infamous appearance. It was one of those SNL performances that really polarizes people. I remember there were a lot of people on Twitter just going on and on about how annoying Maddie Healy was on that show. <laughs> like he he had leather pants, he was shirtless, he was like sticking out his tongue a lot, and. This was me defending the 1975. I, I I liked that there was a guy on television in leather pants and naked torso just being like a rock buffoon. Like, that's what he was on that show. And I really enjoyed it. And I felt like the record um, really... I mean, this was before, again, like every 1975 album was, was, was bloated. Like, I felt like the bloat on that record was actually kind of impressive coming off, like you said, this more sort of simplistic first record. You know, there's that, there's that, there's that, there's the ambient passage, like in the middle, like where things get kind of weird, and then it gets back into catchy pop songs after that. Um, When I revisited this time, I didn't like the record as much. I think the weaknesses of it were more apparent to me, but, you know, there are a lot of good 
pop singles on this record. The Sound, mm. Somebody Else, um, Love Me. Ugh. <laughs> or, Ugh. Uh, <laughs> I, I haven't said that out song title out loud yet. So I'm not sure if this is their best record. I think it's a, it's in the running for being their best record. It's certainly, again, like this represents the era where I still had a lot of warm feelings for this band. Yeah. Uh, I, how do you feel about this record? I think at this point, like liking the 1975 was still kind of like an edgy sort of thing. So I get what you're saying. It's like there was still like like this illicit thrill in defending them. This is my favorite 1975 album. I listened to it yesterday just to revisit it. Um, outside of the context of, you know, 2016, which was like a very itinerant year for me, uh, which, you know, was perfect for an album of this nature. But I love the sequencing of it because it starts off with like Love Me and Uh or Ugh or whatever, which two songs that should really uh, solidify the fact you cannot judge a 1975 song or album based on reading its lyrics first. Like Love Me infamously rhymes car crashian with panashian. Like it's <laughs> and, and that's probably worse than anything from the new single. But yeah, oh, it totally works within the song. It's like they play this game of like are they dumb are they as dumb as they th- are they way dumber than they believe or are they way smarter than they come off like that Saturday night live appearance and um, I love the fact that this there are now there are band one album deep and the song Change a Heart references three other songs from their first album. And this gets into like why you can embrace this band uh, the same way that you would with like Smashing Pumpkins. They create this universe to occupy. Uh, they reward like real granular knowledge of their a catalog. And so I think that the electronic songs are really like they're really impressive they remind me a lot of like m83 uh they play the title track live and it really goes off um and the way it leads back into sound the sound and the anthemic ending of it i think it's really just really well sequenced this to me will always be the peak of the 1975 because they just began to realize the extent of their powers but they weren't totally aware of it you know kind of like the album it's like When you see a guy in the NBA like do a posterizing dunk and like you look at them, it's like they didn't even think that they would be able to pull that off. After that, the 1975 becomes more self-aware of their powers. And I think that it kind of gets in the way. It trips them up as you kind of intimated. So, Yeah, you said something earlier about the first record that you you said this is like a teen pop record for Smashing Pumpkins fans. and I, I think that's doubly true of the second record. And I think it is the best example of them balancing... A, a pure pop approach with a more ambitious structure of, of an album. Like I, I think they pull it off most successfully probably on this record. And in my mind, as we get to the next two records, they try to do it again. And I don't think it, they get the right balance. You know, I don't think they nail it as well as they do on the second record. I have to say though, going into the third record, a brief inquiry into online relationships. This record came out in 2018 this was their big critical turning point. It, it's the it's the album that that features "Love It If We Made It," which was feted as a generational anthem. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a fascinating record to me in a lot of ways because when I was when I revisited it, I actually found myself enjoying it more than I expected. Um, there's some really great songs on this record. Uh, of course, I am a sucker for "I Always Want to Die Sometimes," which is like their big Brit pop. You know, sort of champagne supernova, uh, bittersweet symphony type song that comes at the end of the record. 
there's that song, It's Not Living If It's Not With You, which sounds like the Pretty Woman soundtrack. <laughs> but I loved the Pretty Woman soundtrack when I was a kid, so I like that song. Um, so, you know, Give Yourself a Try, which is, you know, this Joy Division, you know, homage, if you want to call it that. You or a rip-off. Or you call it a rip-off. <laughs> but um, again, I think there's some, like, really strong singles on this record, but you can also see the seeds of their destruction on this record. And maybe, you know, that song, Love It If We Made It, we've talked about this song before on the show, but that does seem like the best and worst thing that happened to this band. It was best because it won them this, this critical acceptance that, as you've alluded to, I think that they really craved, especially Maddie Healy. But I also think that that praise probably rewarded the worst part of this band or affirmed the worst instincts of this band to go in a more sort of serious direction that for me, I don't think suits them. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of that? Yeah. I think with this album, it's there. I, we talked a little bit on past episodes, the phenomena of uh, bright eyes on wide awake. It's morning where it's like the bit where it's like the huge makeup call for like ignoring their past albums and you kind of overrate it. And I think that, this out like love it if we made it like no it's not a generational anthem it just reminds me of being on music writer twitter in 2018 which look that's like a significant part of my life i'm not gonna like pretend like that's 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 minor but um you know they're they're it with this album i think that they it's like in a way a tasteful 1975 album like in that it's i think it's significantly shorter than the two that uh come before and after it um and when I like when I get annoyed a little bit by the overrating of it, but when I return to it, I like it better than I remember. Like there's all the singles are great, like two times great singles. Sincerity is scary. America loves me and et cetera, et cetera, where he you know tries to be Travis Scott. Um, so and also I always want to die sometimes. The only time the 1975 end with like one of the best songs on the album. Usually they have like a couple of like acoustic songs I skip. Um but yeah, I think at this at this structure, it's like them getting a little too high on their own supply um, in terms of like feeling like they really need to speak for a generation instead of, you know, just, I don't know, successfully failing upwards, if that makes any sense. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've heard people kind of say like, yeah, this is actually like the weakest 1975 album. Uh, even if that is true, I still think it holds up really well. It's just not the one I typically turn to when I want to listen to the 1975. Also, Pretty Woman soundtrack. Uh, maybe Go West is the band that gets the next Stranger Things bump. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that, which, yeah, exactly. I, strong Go West vibes uh, in that uh, on this record, but I, but I dig it. Um, you know, people that say that, you know, inquiry into online relationships they say that's the weakest 1975 record i beg to differ because we have to talk about the most recent album notes on a conditional form and i'm curious to hear your take on this record because this was confirmed for me revisiting it for this episode i think this album straight up sucks (laughs) i think i think it's by far the worst album that they've made and it really erased like any of the remaining goodwill i had for this band the record and also the album cycle, Maddie Healy, uh, just the interviews he gave around this time, where I, I just found him to be insufferable. And like, look, I like obnoxious rock stars. I like Billy Corgan. I love the Gallagher brothers. 
but the level of pretension that Maddie Healy was infected with on this album cycle, it was just too much for me to take. I have to say, too, this is the worst sequenced record of recent memory. I mean, again, it's just unforgivable. The first half of the record is incoherent. You you have the five-minute spoken word piece at the start of the record. Then you go get into People, which is like the punk rock pastiche, you know, this upbeat song. Then you go into an ambient instrumental, which kills the momentum. Then you go into this sort of peppy electropop song, which is, okay, this is nice. We're getting some momentum again. Then you get into another ambient instrumental. <laughs> and then you go into that terrible song where they reference Pine Grove. Just like the Birthday first seven... Party. Birthday party. The yeah. first seven songs, it's just brutal. And I think it does get better in the second half. But but still, like it bloated so many bad songs on this record, so many unnecessary songs. Um it just and, and again, it just made me like hate Maddie Healy. And I hope that he can bring me back because I think I've made it clear in this episode that there is music of theirs that I like quite a bit. I again I don't think that they're a great band. I think that they're a good band that makes good singles. But this album, it, I think it's terrible. Mm. Am I wrong on that? Like, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you like this record more than I do. Uh, yeah, I would say it's not. I, I would not go ahead and describe it as, uh, you know. Well, let me ask you this before I talk about how I feel about it. Is this album better than Be Here Now? No way. Okay. Not even cl- Be Here Now is a fucking great record. Okay, cool. I just want to like... And I, I, I wasn't. I, I was and be here sure. now starts with. Do you know what I mean? That's a, which, yeah. Which you know, it's not a five minute spoken word track. It's a fucking banger with yeah. helicopter sounds on it. <laughs> so you know, for all the weaknesses of you know all around the world is a you know I I I skip that song. I mean that's super long. But no, be here. Don't even put those in the same category. It's, okay. it's not even close. To I me. just need to like set the standard here. So. Um, yeah, like we actually had a conversation on a previous episode about like albums that we would re-sequence and like, how did this one escape me? I don't know because the, you know, like every 1975 album begins or it had with a self-titled song, which I love that, but it's usually like it's had the same lyrics and it's like no more than a minute and a half. This one is no not quite the longest song on the record here's a funny thing this song has seven nearly eight million plays like more than some actual (laughs) songs on the record so look if we look at like maybe in 10 years that we 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 have like some uh climate change impact maybe we can soften our opinion about it but yeah this the sequencing makes no fucking sense like this album in a way like and i know this is like real music writer reaching um, I thought this album was pre-pandemic. It turns out it was like May 2020 when, you know, no one knew what the fuck was going on. And this album just makes, puts me back in that phase of like, uh, just being like confused and like fit, all these fits and starts of like life. And, um, you know, well, that I, was part of the cycle, by the way, that people kept calling Medi Healy an oracle because of this record, <laughs> because he, this album was so prescient. Because there's like one lyric about wanting to stay inside. Like that was the only evidence I saw that this was somehow like a prescient pandemic record. And not that like you should expect Maddie Healy to predict a pandemic. I mean, I'm not saying that. (laughs) I'm just, to me, it just, there was a seriousness projected onto the band at this time that Maddie Healy embraced that I just think was antithetical to like what this band's strengths are. Absolutely. 
translated to this bloated, self-important record that, again, I, I, I mean, would you say that, because I will concede, I think the second half is better. So, like, you're talking about resequencing the record. Like, would you move some of those songs up and back up some of the first half of the records yeah. like, to the back seat of the album? I think that if they somehow split, if they somehow split it up, like um, you know, the same way like I Big Thief did their record. Now, granted, that does not get rid of like having no head, which is the 18th song. It's like six minutes long. I can or Bagsy not in net. Um, yeah, you could totally get this down to like 12 or 14 songs and have it be better or just resequence it. But I, I kind of like the filler songs on this. Like I like Roadkill, the song that's like kind of like. Uh, kind of bluesy i like uh tonight i wish i was your boy shiny collarbone is which is the least played song on this album one of my favorites the one where they kind of uh you know homage jamie xx look i i think that this is like kind of an end of an era thing for the band it's like we got to put out these 20 songs um i i listen to it the way i experience grand theft auto radio stations where if i listen to it <laughs> 20 minutes at a time I'm like oh this is pretty fucking cool I've never listened to this song, this album straight through, and it's really not that much longer than LP two. Um, I don't, like it feels longer. Though. It That's does. It difference. feels and, twice and, as long. And like you were saying, uh, the second record is actually really well sequenced. Yes, I really like how that record is structured. You have all the pop bangers, you know, at the start of the record. Then you have kind of like the weird part of the record that I think works really well, more like the M eighty three section, and then you transition back to some of the pop stuff. I think that works really well. That's a really well-sequenced record. This record is not. And yeah. Even if you look at it as a playlist, you know, a playlist still flows. You know, you still have some logic to how it's structured. And I just don't, I don't know. It's a very odd way to s- sequence the record. I, I don't know if they've ever been asked about that. <laughs> uh, well, they, they went dark on interviews, af- like, shortly afterwards, so... Like, yeah, like I, I, that's been a major thing with this record coming up, which is that you were like, it was a nine month lead up between the first single of uh, Notes on a Conditional Form and the album release. Nine months. Like, it just, and, and, and you talked about like how every time Maddie Healy opened his mouth, it just like turned you off. So maybe they've learned from it. Well, I, I, how do you feel about this new? Because we haven't heard the single yet, so we were we were making fun of the lyrics last week. They were they reminded me of the lyrics from like the last couple records. Very topical, uh, lots of references to like relevant discoursey type things, which makes me not feel terribly good about where they're headed on this record. But it is a it's going to be a tight record. Presumably, although you brought up there's 11 songs, but they could each be nine minutes long. You know, so we don't know yet. But like, what's your feeling on them? I mean, you obviously still love them. Like, what's your hope for this new record? Um, I'm hoping that, I, like, I was pretty convinced after this, uh, the previous album, they would stop, like, making albums, like, or they would just release, like, e- streaming playlists, or they'd make the... These guys, like, strike me as total, like, all four members eventually make a solo album. <laughs> Um, and I think that like, they're so aware of music writer tropes that they're, they were just destined to make a, we're going to tighten things up back to basics type album, whatever basics mean for them. Now, whether that's like the back to basics, smashing pumpkins albums, 
uh, that I don't listen to or like Back to Basics as in uh, their self-titled album. Look, I'm looking forward to it. Like, I'm going to defend. I feel like this is a band where even if they suck, it's still kind of fun to defend them. Um, just because they elicit such divisive uh, takes. I don't think many bands at their level do that. I think even the 1975's fans like have a sense of humor about it in a way that like you don't quite often see with bands at that level. So look, whether or not this album is good or not, the discourse is going to be phenomenal. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I've said this many times. I, I've gone back and forth on this band. I'm, I'm now in a more negative position, but I'm open. Like, if this record is really good, I'm going to be excited about it. Like, I, I, I do want a, a really good 1975 record. I think they are a fun band to love or to hate. I mean, and like you said, there's an element to this band where you can actually argue about them, and it's fun. You know, whereas you had a band like Big Thief, Big Thief is loved by a lot of people. They're also hated by a lot of people. I tend to really dislike the conversation around that <laughs> band. Like when people don't like it, you know, there there is there's sort of it's just not as fun, you know, because the 1975 they are this cartoonish type band, so it's just fun to to debate them or to uh, to make fun of them. Or to or to love them passionately. So yeah, I'm glad they exist, even when they piss me off. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? Yeah, we are getting really into like core Recommendation Corner, because I'm going to talk about an Oklahoma emo band called Ben Quad. Uh, they released an album uh, about a week ago called I'm Scared That's All There Is. There's a building on the cover. This is straight up, like, down the middle, uh, foot on the gas emo. Um, look, it's not been a great year for the genre, or at least there hasn't been a whole lot of things that have gotten people excited. Uh, this one, however, um, it just strikes me as, like, leagues beyond uh, anything else I've heard in the emo realm, especially if we're talking about like, you know, twinkly kind of pop punk leaning stuff. It's seven songs. It's 21 minutes. Um, there's a lot of the gang vocals, the tapping, but there's a lot of like sophisticated, surprising amount of sophistication in the songwriting. Like they'll do group group vocals, but it'll also be like harmonies. So it's not quite the, you know, seeing this band in like a shitty basement. It's like, seeing this band, but they actually have a decent studio or like, Hey, maybe you're seeing this band. They're opening for like a much bigger band. Um, it's been hard for bands like this to get any sort of traction, but I mean, like people who have checked for this kind of music, they, I think can agree that like when you hear this music done, right, there's not much of a substitute for it. So Ben quad, I'm scared. That's all there is. Emo, Oklahoma, I'm all for it. Let's get let's make Tulsa the next big scene or whatever. So I want to talk about not an album but a single that came out this week. It's by a band that many of us love called Always. They put out a single called 
Pharmacist. It's from their new album that's coming out in October called Blue Rev. And I just wanted to get this into Recommendation Corner because I feel like for our listeners out there, they're probably going to be excited that there's a new Always record. So I wanted to make sure that this was being reported to them. This is the first Always record in five years. The last one came out in 2017. That was Antisocialites. Uh, and this band, I mean, they are on the schedule. They're putting out a new album every four years. Now it's five years. And uh, it's a shame that they're not more prolific because I do think that in terms of dream pop, indie pop, whatever you want to call it, Always is probably the best in the business right now. And it's uh, too bad that we don't get more music from them. But on the other hand, they have incredible quality control. The first two records are great. The new single is very much in their wheelhouse. It sounds great. I haven't heard the new album yet. I'm supposed to be getting a promo here very soon. I expect it to also be great. Um, So yeah, it's exciting news. Always season coming up in the fall. That seems like perfect timing for this band. It's going to be late fall. You're going to want to hear Molly Rankin's sweet vocals in your ears over jangly guitars. It's going to be great. So definitely check out the new single. It's called Pharmacist. The band is always, and yes, I just wanted to make sure that we rejoiced in this episode about there being a new Always record. Great song. And also, here's a fun fact. Uh, the production level sounds like way higher than their previous two. Sean Everett's involved in this one, I believe. Oh, that, I did not know that, but that is awesome. I see that Always is opening for the War on Drugs at Red Rocks in ah. September. So there's a little Sean Everett connection there, I'm sure. Uh Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.